All right, <laughs> it works. Hey guys, um, today we're digging into a really interesting topic. It's the issue of eschatology, and um, I'm very excited to get into this. I spent a lot of time preparing it, and I think that you'll find it uh, very informative, even if you don't agree with me. So uh, allow me to, now that I'm, I'm sure that we're on, let me just say a couple things. Um, uh, if, if AJ, if you're watching this, uh, can you please redirect everyone from, if they're in the wrong link? Uh, let me see. I'm live now. <laughs> All right. And, uh, and then I'll, I'll get started in just a moment with the actual deep content. Sorry about the little glitch as far as the delay that goes there. I'm still figuring out our software. I think I need to use a secondary software for the streaming, uh, to avoid the weird glitch that's causing me to not be able to live stream properly, but this should be working now. So you guys see me, you guys hear me. I think everything's good. All right. Um, great. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Okay. So th this issue we're going to dig into today is really interesting. It actually stems from a few statements of Jesus where he, he makes these statements about the future, about, about his second coming and taken by themselves People say Jesus failed. He said he was coming and he didn't, he didn't come. So let me read to you some of those statements. Uh, here in Mark 13, 30, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Then in Luke 21, 32, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. In Matthew 10, 23, it says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And so some say, well, then the second coming of Jesus was supposed to happen in a very brief period of time. Uh, in Matthew 16, 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then in Mark 9, 1, it says, and he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son, see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to do a nice long stream today. And we're going to explain all of these verses by looking at them in context. So uh, why do I bring this up? Well, this is what some people call a, the, the crisis of eschatology. And uh, the reason why they call it that is because this is where a lot of skeptics and cynics, like for instance, Bertrand Russell, a very well-known uh, skeptic of Christianity um, and any, any, any sort of deism or anything like that, he, he said that Jesus was a failed apocalyptic prophet based upon verses like these, that Jesus was supposed to have not only his first but second and final coming within the generation of those who heard his original teaching. And so then others have said, okay, well, we need a solution to this. We've got to explain these verses somehow. And uh, that, that's where we come up with a doctrine called preterism. Now, I'm not a preterist, nor am I here to attack preterists. Um, but, but one of the ways people reconcile these, these, these statements of Jesus is they go, you're right. It was supposed to happen in Jesus's lifetime, and it did. And so they, there are two two general camps of preterism, partial preterism and full preterism. Full preterism is people who say everything in the entire Bible has already been fulfilled. It all happened by the end of 70 AD or, or thereabouts. And then partial preterism is them saying, no, just a lot of it has been fulfilled, right? And so Jesus came in a manner in 70 AD, judging uh, Jerusalem, so to speak, but, but not that the full coming of Christ had happened. But now I'm not a preterist. And so I'm not going to take either of those perspectives, but I want to acknowledge them because I want you to know there's a whole side of things I'm not actually going to cover. And when it comes to eschatology, 
that's the study of last things, prophecy. People disagree vehemently on this issue. And I, I do disagree with people, but not vehemently. <laughs> not on this issue. Eschatology, I will say this. Whether you agree with me or disagree with me, hopefully this stream will be fruitful for you because it will allow you to at least hear aside, hear an opinion that's based in the text, that's based on a verse-by-verse -verse study of the passage. So I think you'll find it fruitful even if you just disagree, even just to know the talking points you have to deal with if you don't have my perspective on eschatology. Um, I'll also say this. You might want to watch this video twice. Uh, a lot of the teaching that I do online, uh, I, I really jam-pack a ton of content, but that's part of the reasons because I know it's like permanently up there. And I'd rather jump to the next interesting thing than belabor one point until we all die of boredom. So I, I want to keep it interesting for everybody, so I move quickly. But that's because you can rewatch stuff, and uh, and you may want to watch this particular one twice. Um, I would recommend that you have your Bibles out and open. It's, it's fine if you don't, but it will be a lot better for you if you do. It'll make more sense. Things will have more clarity for you if, uh, if you have your Bible open. And you'll be able to hear my commentary on a passage and then look back at those lines you just read and see how valid are Mike's statements based on those lines. Because guess what? You should be critical of my teaching as you should of anybody's. Let the text be the thing that is king in this, in this, uh, in this issue of Bible study. Always compare what you hear with what you read. So... Um, that's my goal, of course. I just want to know what the Bible actually says. So we're going to be looking at Mark 13, Luke 21, and Matthew 24, an extensive chunk from each of those chapters of the Bible, and ask, what simply does the text say? And right before we jump in, there's two things I want to tell you. This will set the context so you can understand, um, uh, in case you're not familiar with this, you can understand where I'm coming from. Um, so the first thing is this. I believe that prophecy has partial and total fulfillment. Uh, some people call this the already and not yet, although I don't tend to use that phraseology because it's it's almost too flexible of a term. I'm not sure exactly what they mean by it. I don't necessarily use the word double fulfillment because it's not that I'm saying a prophecy is fulfilled two different times. I like to use the phrase partial and total fulfillment uh, because what I'm specifically talking about today is that a prophecy will have sort of a near fulfillment that's not really a fulfillment of the whole prophecy. It's just some elements of it are fulfilled, like a taste of what's to come. And then the whole prophecy remains yet unfulfilled, and it is later fulfilled in detail. And we see this in the Bible um, in a few different places, including we'll look at a couple examples today. Um, but this, a study of Elijah is an example of that, or Isaiah, where it speaks of the virgin shall conceive. Um, that was speaking of a woman of the time who actually gave birth to a baby, but it didn't really fulfill the prophecy. Jesus fulfilled the whole thing. And the the unfulfilled nature, the yet-to-be-fulfilled nature of the prophecy, that's what made you go, no, there's, there's still more to be said about this. There's still more to happen as a result of this. And I think that Jesus, his statements help affirm this. So um, that would be a whole other live stream, just basically saying, let's make the case for partial and total fulfillment. But it's not an uncommon view. I'm not espousing something that's just uniquely my view, nor is it even just a futurist perspective um, as it's just people in my camp that view that. That's a pretty common view. And uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, Elijah, the Virgin, uh, all, all these sorts of things are examples of this. So that's the first thing to know. The second thing to know before we jump into Mark 13, that's where we're going to start. Second thing to know is this, that in 70 AD, 70 AD, um, just, uh, you know, about 40 years, approximately 40 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, um, 
the Roman armies came and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and just ripped the temple apart into pieces. A very tragic and terrible thing. Um, then they went on to continue attacking uh, the Jewish people and killing large numbers of them. And you can read about this in history. I bring this up because what Jesus is about to tell us in Mark 13 and in the subsequent passages, Luke 21, Matthew 24, this relates to the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And uh, in, in case you couldn't, in case you couldn't tell, <laughs> we're obviously getting into some nitty-gritty details on eschatology. Um, so, so by by way of recap, we're setting us up for today, so we can really get as much as possible out of this live stream. There are these statements of Jesus that make it sound like he was going to come back in that generation, the generation in the first century. There are then these different views of prophecy, partial, total fulfillment. Keep that in mind. And then there is the sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Some people see that as the fulfillment. I don't think that it, I don't think it's the real fulfillment. I think it's the partial fulfillment. So we'll dig into this today. And if you disagree or if you agree, although I'm more interested in disagreement, uh, maybe I'm just uh, a glutton for punishment, but you can actually put in the comments section right now on the live stream, you can put your comments, your questions into the live stream and I will answer those at the very end after I'm done with all the content. Again, I like to give you the content first, answer the questions later, and that way this stream is of use to someone a year from now or five years from now, uh, God willing, it's still available online. So here we go, Mark chapter 13. Um, the reason why we're bringing this verse, this chapter up is because this is the chapter where we see um, the phrase in Mark 13, 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So let's look at it in context. Was the generation Jesus talked about were the things he's, he's talking about, were they supposed to happen 2000 years ago? And Jesus was either a failed prophet, uh, prophet that's what the skeptic would say, or the, pre the preterist would say, oh no, it already happened, guys. You're expecting future things that have already taken place. Um, so Mark 13, verse 1. Verse 1, it says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, and here's the question they give him, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So they're saying, hey, look at the temple. It's glorious. It's beautiful. Jesus says it's going to be utterly destroyed. Every stone tossed off the other, which was literally something that happened in 70 AD. Um, so what follows is really interesting because uh, what follows, um, I'm going to go ahead and put this, this scripture actually up for those who are interested. I may not be able to keep up with this, but I'll try to put the scriptures up when I can here. So what follows after this is really interesting. Um, what Jesus gives in answer to the question they ask um, in verse uh, four, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign? He actually gives them a lot more than just an answer of the basic question they seem to be asking. Their, their question itself is also really interesting because their question assumes, it seems, more than the destruction of the temple. Like they're asking about more. Like there's more of this story that we don't have. And we, we actually get some more in other Gospels as they account recount the same tale, um, the same story. So their question seems to assume more than the destruction of the temple because they ask, when will all these things, when are all these things going to be accomplished? That's what they ask. 
So the, that's, that's a bigger question than just the destruction of the temple. So either, my thought is this, either Jesus mentioned other things, which aren't listed here, um, and they're referring to those things, or the disciples had other things in their mind, perhaps other future prophecies from the Old Testament. Because they, of course, they see Jesus, he's come, what else is coming next? Um, what, else, what other prophecies are being fulfilled in our day because of Christ or in some future day? How's this going to work? Now I'm going to give you a little a little spoiler. Uh, I think verses, starting here in verse 5, verses 5 through 13 is about... Notice he doesn't answer their question. He gives them a big list of things that will happen before he gives them an answer to their question. So this is about a delay that they're going to experience. So already we're really, the context I think is helping us with uh, debunking, especially Bertrand Russell um, or guys like him who think Jesus was a failed apocalyptic prophet. Um, So, and Jesus began to say to them, it says here in verse five, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So immediately we have in those two verses, a a prophecy that there are false Christs coming. So this is something, this is something that's confirmed now. My, my, I suspected reading what they said and what Jesus said in response, that this was about more than just the destruction of the temple, but the destruction of the temple is what triggered the question but it's about more than just that. Well, Jesus, now definitely he's talking about more than just the destruction of the temple. He mentions here, false Christ will come. False Christ will come. So now he's referring to his second coming. Um, He's, and specifically in the negative, he's like, here's what's not my coming, right? You won't, there won't be a private, oh, there's Jesus, he's over there. Don't listen to that. False Christs will come. Um, Now, here's what's interesting to me. Imagine you're one of the disciples. You're living with Jesus. You're walking with Jesus. You're like, guess who's come? The Christ. And then he, he gives you, while he's with you, he gives you a warning that in the future, false Christ will come. But wait, I mean, Jesus, the Christ is already with us. You see what he's doing is he's showing there's a difference between the first and the second coming. I'm here now, but yet, yet there's going to be this time period where false Christ will come and they'll deceive many people. And he warns them, don't let them deceive you either. Um, so that's very interesting. Very interesting. Jesus had a, uh, he's, it's giving us a prophetic view of the future here. And then um, here in verses seven and eight, it says, uh, starting in verse seven, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. That's not the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but all these, um, excuse me, these are but the beginning. Oh, excuse I just lost my place there. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. So what he's just given in verses seven and eight is very interesting. Let's look at it systematically, right? Take now, it, if you've heard this verse out of context a lot, you got to now put it in in its actual context. Jesus is saying, wars and rumors of wars equal not yet. Earthquakes and famines, that's just going to happen. That's not the sign. That's not the sign. This is Jesus's point. Right? This is not the sign of my coming. Now, I grew up hearing many people tell me that earthquakes and famines and rumors of wars and wars, and these were all the signs. Now, to be sure, in Revelation, there's mention of these great and terrible catastrophes happening. But Jesus doesn't give them as the sign of his coming. Not in this passage, it's the opposite. These are going to take place through the beginning of birth pangs. Then he continues all the way through verse 13, more warning against what is ultimately not his coming. So here in verse nine, 
But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever is given to you at that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will be delivered, uh, will deliver brother over to death. And in the father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So let's remember the context. Oh, there's the scripture for you. I forgot to put it up. Uh, the context is this. Jesus is, is asked, when is all this stuff going to happen? All this stuff, meaning maybe more than just the destruction of the temple. And the first thing he says is, don't pay attention when, when people say that, that I've come back and there will be a delay. Don't let wars and rumors of wars, don't let earthquakes and famines and pestilences make you think that it's happening. In fact, you'll be persecuted. You will, you will suffer. Your eyes are to be on. Serve me faithfully in this life unto death. That's your focus. So that, that's what I get from these, these verses. Then in verse 14, it shifts. And Jesus now, he, he's, he's talked about a delay before his coming. Now he's talking to them about what to look for, for when he does come. So this is interesting. This is the sign. This is the thing. In verse 14, he says, But when you see the abomination of desolation, Standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. Now, I'll, I'll continue on in a moment, but let me pause for a second and talk about this. Um, the abomination of desolation, when you see this, standing where it ought not be. This is, I'm, I'm going to give you four points about this that I think are interesting. Um, for one, the abomination of desolation is... Uh, is, is a reference to an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Daniel. It, it occurs in Daniel 9.27, in Daniel 11.31, and in Daniel 12.11, and then in the context around those verses. Uh, I'm not going to do a, an extensive study of that today. I can only pick so much to talk about at one time. But the abomination of desolation, I'll just read to you Daniel 11.31. It says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate, the abomination of desolation. Daniel 12, 11, it says, and from that time that the regular burnt offering is taken away to, uh, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So there's a, a, a time countdown from the timing of this thing happening. It seems to be that this is something that's set up in the temple. So this requires the existence of a temple, which is why many Futurists say there will in the future be a temple in Jerusalem. Uh, I, I am of that opinion. And if you don't agree with me, then fine. <laughs> uh, we, especially especially on the issue of um, eschatology, we need to be able to disagree as Christians and not divide on the issue. Debate, disagree, that's fine. But not divide, um, in my opinion. So... That's the first point. The abomination of desolation is something that they would know of. It's, it's in the book of Daniel. It's a yet future event in the eyes of Jesus. It's a yet future event, which now let me, for you prophecy geeks, I'm, I'm talking to you guys like you, like you read your Bibles and you actually know something about it here. So if you're very new to this stuff, forgive me for giving you uh, a little too much. Uh, maybe to think about um, and maybe come back to this video some other time after you've had more time to maybe look over the book of Daniel. But 
but for us who maybe have gone through this a little bit and you're interested in thinking about it and hearing opinions, here's an example in Daniel of that partial and total fulfillment because Daniel speaks of the abomination of desolation. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, he shows up B.C., right? We're talking B.C., before Christ. I think it was like 160 or something like that. He shows up and he, in, in the mind of the Jews, he's fulfilling much of what Daniel says, but not entirely. So much so that they actually called what he did the abomination of desolation. So they would know, oh yeah, like when Antiochus Epiphanes put a, brought a pig into the temple, sacrificed it, and, and profaned the temple with this, with this offering that was a, an, an abomination. And so um, Jesus refers to it not as a past event, but as a future event. So we see partial fulfillment, total fulfillment. In fact, I would look at partial fulfillment like, um, like the, uh, like when you're in the mall and and they and they give you the the little chicken on a on a toothpick and they're like, you know, you want a sample and you eat the sample, and now is the sample the same as the plate? Well, no, of course not. Uh, but the sample is from the plate. It's of the plate. It's like the plate, and it lets you know that the plate is legit. Like this is what the plate has on it. So I think partial fulfillment is like a sample. Yet it doesn't mean there's no plate doesn't mean it's all over, which is the problem I have with the preterist position is that it acts, in my mind, the preterist view acts as though a partial fulfillment is a total fulfillment. Um, that would be my shortest way of, of answering that, that issue. So, so first point about the abomination of desolation, it's from the book of Daniel. It's something that's put in the temple that is just terribly wrong. And Jesus says, um, watch for that. So number two, second point is this abomination of desolation is yet future from the perspective of Jesus, which, which supports my view that partial and total fulfillment is something that it seems, um, Jesus would have supported in my opinion, I, my opinion about eschatology here. Um, now number three, third point about this issue, this is the sign. Don't look for wars and rumors of wars. Don't look for famines and pestilences in various places. Don't look for reports that Jesus has returned. Don't look for that. Specifically warn not to look for that. Instead, this is the sign, the abomination that causes desolation. Um, so there is a sign, but it also requires a temple. I mean, unless, unless you very much spiritualize what's being talked about here. But I don't, I don't, I'm not inclined to do that. Um, and then number four, my last point on that is it's geared to the reader. Isn't it interesting? It says, let him who reads understand. That's a, people have really debated. What is this about? Um, there's a couple options. Uh, the abomination of desolation. Let him who reads understand. Uh, one option is that it's talking about Daniel. Let the reader understand. Like go back and read Daniel to understand what the phrase abomination of desolation is talking about. So that, that could be the application or it could be inserted by Mark saying, Hey, like, I realize, Mark, I'm realizing this isn't just for me. This is for a future audience. So let the reader understand, just pushing it out again. It's a future thing. That's another possibility. So that that could go either way. Um, so I'll just share with you a couple possibilities. Now let's let's read on. Verse 15 through 20. Let's read this section. It says, Let the one who is... Uh, on the housetop, not go down or enter his house or take anything out and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing and infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in the winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, 
the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Um, by saved there, I think it means things will be so bad, everyone would die if God didn't just put a time limit on the events that would happen. I don't think it's talking about salvation in the eternal sense, but in the physical sense. So there's, um, there's unparalleled tribulation. Now here's where I look at it and I go, okay, I'm taking Jesus rather plainly. I don't think he's using exaggerated language here, deliberately kind of spicing it up. If he wants to, that's fine. He can do that. Jesus does use hyperbole in some places. They strain on a gnat. They swallow a camel, right? And that's that's okay. But I don't personally see justification for viewing it that way. Um, uh, some people do. R.C. Sprawl would just say, oh, it's just exaggeration, right? And I respect the man but uh, and his teaching, but I don't agree in this passage. And, and so he says, yeah, look, run away from Jerusalem when this thing happens. When you see this happening, get out of town. Get out of Dodge. Don't stay there. And then... There's going to be unparalleled tribulation. Now, now I would say, um, yeah, locally, 70 AD, that, that, that fits these descriptions. You know, tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of creation until now. That yeah, sort of, right? I mean, 70 AD, it, it fits it in, in localized areas around Jerusalem, Masada, certain locations where, you know, terrible tragedies and, and horrific things happen to the Jewish people. But it doesn't really fit beyond that. It just doesn't go beyond that. You know, it, it doesn't really fit the description given. This is the worst thing that's ever happened in the world. <laughs> if God didn't stop it, everyone would be dead. Um, I take Jesus at his word. This has not happened yet. So he says, if I recap, right, when, when will all these things take place? Hey, there'll be false Christ. There'll be a long delay. You just live for me even unto death. And then he says, then there's the sign and then there's the tribulation. And I would say these things have not happened yet. In 70 AD, um, we don't read of anything in my knowledge that that is related to the abomination of desolation. So, let's continue. Verse um, 21. He says, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Um, but be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. So now there's there's really, from what I understand, when you see the abomination of desolation, now there's going to be an, even an increase in false Christs. And so he goes, yeah, okay, so when people see the fulfillment of this prophecy around the world, of course, people are like, Jesus is coming back. Look, we just saw, look, they rebuilt the temple. Look, they made the sacrifice in it, the abomination of desolation. It's like Revelation and Daniel and, and all these different passages are coming together. So then they go, oh, this guy says he's the, he's the Christ. This guy says he's the Christ. Jesus goes, don't listen to any of them. Don't listen to them. This is the repeated warning of Jesus. This is why I know that the Jehovah's Witnesses were wrong about a private coming of Jesus. Um, and this is why I also think that um, the the pro probably partial and full preterism is probably wrong on this when they suggest that Jesus came back in a form at, in 70 AD. I think that that's not substantiated by the text itself. So let's read on. Um, and again, if you have questions, you can put them in the comments section and uh, AJ will send those to me and I will answer them at the end of this live stream. So thanks for being with me today, by the way. All right, let's look at verse 24. But in those days, after, the, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This, this doesn't necessarily mean 
you know, millions of light years away, stars are, are falling onto the earth. Like it would just take one and we'd all be gone, right? Anything that fell from the sky, was we still call them shooting stars today. If it's a meteorite, it was a shooting star when it was a meteor. Um, so the, the stars from heaven, uh, they're falling from the sky, the powers of the heavens shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth uh, to the ends of the heaven, ends of heaven. So there's going to be this great gathering. This, to me, it seems fairly clear this is not fulfilled. Um, some preterists would say it is. I think that's unsubstantiated. But it seems to me this is obviously not fulfilled. And it fits. Everything so far fits, right? Jesus says, long delay. You focus on ministering to me. Stay faithful unto death. Watch for this one sign, which has not happened historically. And then even still, false Christ and all that, you will see me. It will be a visible return. Every eye will see me. Revelation 1.7 actually supports this. It says, behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Even those who pierced him. You might be like, well, then they had to be alive at the time. Um, but God holds nations uh, he, he holds national identities of people groups um, throughout time. And so those who pierced him would be either, even though they're dead, they're still going to see the coming of Christ or that the the people who are descendants of those who pierced him, they will even see him. Um, so that's the, the context. Don't listen for reports about Jesus when he comes. You won't be like, wait, did I miss it? Right? Because yesterday was supposed to be the rapture and, and everything was supposed to happen. Right? Just, it, we got to stop. We got to stop. At least you got to stop and don't be gullible, even though it's exciting. Don't be gullible to predictions that aren't really rooted in a verse-by-verse -verse understanding of the passage. Um, then in verse 28, he gives us an analogy. He says, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that, it, that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation, now here's the key verse, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will, will not pass away. So what is this generation referring to? Um, my, my simple answer, some people say generation, it, it means the Jewish people will not pass away, um, that it's like an ethnic thing. Um, I would say this generation refers to the generation experiencing the things after the delay. The abomination of desolation, there's there's a time limit on it. The abomination of desolation happens, then there's a time limit. That generation will not pass away, the one that experiences that particular thing. So uh, there's there's at least my perspective on that. Let's, let's read the next because I think that when you look at all this in context, it all works together, which makes me feel fairly strongly about this interpretation. Verse 32, Jesus goes on. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Awake. Now, a couple things. Verse 37, he says, What I say to you, I say to all. Jesus is now expanding this whole long lecture. It's it's not just for his, his hearers at the moment. It's for everybody. 
So that, that gives more credence to the idea that there's a distant future prophetic fulfillment of this. Um, he then just says, like, you don't know the day or the hour. Now, how do you reconcile, um, here's the sign, and it's limited, and it'll be in this generation, and then he goes, and you don't know the day or the hour. Well, the most, to me, the most reasonable way to reconcile these, or to, to put it together in a way that makes sense, is that Jesus is saying, look, here's the timeline of events. There's a long delay, right? Here's me now, then there's a long delay. There's a bunch of stuff that happens. You just stay faithful to me. Then, some undetermined or unknown time in the future, there's the abomination of desolation, and within that generation, that's when it's going to happen. But since you don't know when all this is going to take place, you just stay awake. That would be, I think, a good, at least very likely interpretation of it. Um, so now, let's let's just draw a conclusion from the, what we all that we've read from Mark 13. Jesus is asked, when is this stuff going to happen? And then his answer, if you kind of take it all in one gulp, it's like, hey, it's a ways out. It's unknown to you. It'll happen. But you just stay faithful. That's just be ready. Just be ready. That That's the, the kind of conclusion you get right there. So the next passage I want to look at is actually in Luke 21. In Luke 21, we read about a parallel passage, right? Because we have the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and these, these carry some of the same content amongst them or very similar content. So here is another one of those verses because in, in Luke uh, 21, 32, he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So the question is this, can I like provide the same interpretive in context application to Luke as I did in Mark, does it make sense in the way that Luke has communicated the story to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Well, I think the answer is yes. So let's actually look at Luke now, Luke 21, starting in verse 5. He says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So it's obviously the context is very similar, right? They're talking about the temple and then he, about how great it is. And then he says, look, it's going to be destroyed. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Very similar question again. And he said, see that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So again, this is really similar because they're they're asking when is it going to happen? And he first offers a disclaimer. It's don't be bothered by wars and rumors of wars. It's just those things are going to happen. This stuff's going to take place. Um, The end is not at once. It's not right away. This is, do you get that? It's not right away. So Jesus is not, I think, predicting his second coming anytime near his first coming here. He's preparing them for a long delay. Then we read in verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. That's, these are things that are just going to happen, right? He doesn't say these are signs. He says, these are just things that will happen. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up 
even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And so their commitment to Christ, that's the thing that will that will secure their eternal salvation. Um, so th this is very, like, this is running fairly parallel to what we read in Mark. There's a delay. Uh, there'll be earthquakes, famines. The sign, those kinds of signs, don't worry about those things. Um, persecution's coming your way. Be ready for that. And then he gets into something they can look for. And this is where Luke is different than Mark. Remember, Mark, he, when at this point in Mark, it was where Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, right? That was the sign to look for. But in Luke, it's slightly different. So let's look at this in verse 20. Um, okay, verse 20 he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let those... Let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, in those, uh, pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's This is a really interesting uh, difference. Let's just pause and notice it, right? In Mark, it's like you're looking for the abomination of desolation. In Luke, he didn't even say, here's what you should look for, for my coming. This is different. In fact, everything he says here could have happened before in, in Mark, theoretically, if you put it all together, harmonize it. it this, this whole statement, verses 20 through 24, could happen before Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation. Um, and this ties into the whole double, not double, but uh, partial and total fulfillment thing. Um, so this, the thing to look for here is when Jerusalem's surrounded by armies, run away, not I'm coming, I'm near, just run away, get out of there. This is going to happen. These are the days of the vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Now, some will take this phrase to fulfill all that is written. And they will say, this is proof that when, when the armies came around Jerusalem in 70 AD, everything that was written in the Bible had to be fulfilled. And that'll be the full preterist position. Um, uh, now, now I don't I don't think that that's that's necessarily true, and I think I have good reason in Scripture to to demonstrate this. So let me let me take you to Matthew three thirteen, because this passage gives a demonstration where the phrase like all fulfilled doesn't mean all fulfilled in the sense that you think. <laughs> so uh, then Jesus came from Galilee to to Jordan to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. You guys are familiar with this, right? John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for this. Thus, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, here's the question. Did Jesus fulfill all righteousness merely through the baptism that John gave him? And I think we would say, no, that's not the case. Jesus didn't fulfill all righteousness through the one act. So, in the same sense, it was a piece of the things Jesus was doing to fulfill all righteousness. He was doing all a whole bunch of things to fulfill all righteousness in the same sense. Um, these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Doesn't mean everything that's written will be fulfilled on these particular days. It's just a piece of the puzzle. So, I, I think that that's a good answer to a preterist position in that particular verse. Um, now this, this is like, this really fits 70 AD, doesn't it? Jerusalem surrounded by armies, 
it's, its desolation has come near. It even uses the phrase desolation, interestingly, connected to, to Jerusalem. But it doesn't fit the description of the abomination of desolation in Daniel. This is where I see partial and total fulfillment. I, I see Jesus, this little snippet here, this is about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Whereas the statements in Mark are primarily about later things. Could have been that Jesus gave it all at one time. Um, that's entirely possible. But I think that that fits the context the best. That's my view. Then you have this really interesting statement here about the times of the Gentiles. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is very interesting. After the destruction of Jerusalem, there'll just be this undetermined time period where the Gentiles are trampling Jerusalem underfoot. And how long will they do it? Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Which you can you can relate this to uh, possibly to Romans chapter eleven, where where Paul says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It's fullness of the Gentiles, times of the Gentiles fulfilled. That may be the relation that's going on there. Um, so Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot for an indetermined period of time. So just like in Mark, now here we are in Luke, and there's this pause. Times of the Gentiles. How long will that be? Bible doesn't say this here. It just tells you there's a pause. Now, um, as we continue, then Jesus gets into signs. Now, he says, and there will be signs. When will the signs be coming? It'll be after the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I should say Jerusalem is still being trampled underfoot by Gentiles, at least in some sense. I know Israel as a nation happened in 1948. Some people saw that as like the, the, the starting of a clock. Um, I don't, I don't personally think you can guarantee that, although I'd be excited if it was. Um, Jerusalem is still under dispute. They're still trying to get status as the capital being in, in, uh, of Israel being in Jerusalem, trying to get other people to approve it. Um, the, uh, it's, is it Jerusalem? Is it Tel Aviv? That's the debate, right? Um, also, the Temple Mount itself is not being controlled by the Jews, and that would be, of course, the most important place in the city of Jerusalem, still being controlled and trampled underfoot by the, the Gentiles, in this case, the, the non-Jewish uh, Arabs who are controlling the Temple Mount, um, oftentimes not allowing Jewish people to do things or go up there. When we, when we did our trip to Israel, I was told when I went up to the Temple Mount and I was going to share on the Temple Mount um, to act like a tour guide and point at things and not, and, and not bring up my Bible or open it while on the Temple Mount because it could cause problems. Um, as in people who are very vehement against Christianity might just come up and um, make their presence known <laughs> or something like that. And so an interesting thing, you know, when, when you have to be warned away um, in that kind of context is kind of strange. But but yeah, so trampled underfoot may, may, may well be still happening at this moment. I think it is personally. Um, and please take note where I, um, I hedge my bets where I say, hey, here's what I think, here's what it might be, here's what seems likely to me. I'm doing this quite on purpose because I not only want you to know that I may change my mind on some of these issues in the future, but also I want you to know that there are doctrines that we hold to with, with the grip of death, like I will never let go, I'd rather die. And there are other doctrines that we hold to that are further out that we say, I think this is right, I'm convinced of it, but I would not um, hold to it in the same with the same fervor, commitment, and... Um, gosh, like uncompromising mentality that I hold to the gospel of Jesus. And so the gospel of Jesus, man, we've all sinned. We need Jesus, um, faith in, in him. 
salvation by grace apart from works. I'll, I'll die before that changes, <laughs> but not this. Uh, this, will be, this will be something I'm always open to listen, always open to hear more. So let's continue reading on. So Jesus gets into the signs that will happen after the, after the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And there will be signs in, the, in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves. Okay, pause, right? This is just very generic language. Jesus could be talking about the stuff that we read about in Revelation right here. That would make a lot of sense. He's like, there will be signs. And then even the hearers of his day didn't know what those signs were going to be in detail. But Revelation may well reveal those things. That's my view. Um, so people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Um, so that's, that's when the redemption is drawing near is when, when all this stuff is happening. I mean, even including this is the sign of the son of man in the heavens. And they're going to, they're going to see him. They're going to see his sign. The scripture says both of those things. So it may well be that there's kind of a mixture of the two happening there. And then and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Okay. Let's, let's read on. He says in verse 29, and he told them a parable. And this parable is directly connected to his teaching about the end times. It says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What generation? The generation that is there when you see the fig tree budding and getting its leaf, right? So here's the analogy that we're getting from Jesus, the parable. The fig tree itself, let me scroll down. I, I left my notes in the dust. Where am I here? Let's see. <laughs> That's what happens when you, when sometimes you just, you just ditch them. The fig tree equals, um, equals the, these signs Jesus is talking about that happen after Jerusalem is no longer trampled by the Gentiles. Then there will be signs, which, which means implication trampled by the Gentiles, then not Implication, now the Jews have control again. And so we're looking for a future time where the Jews will be building a temple and all that. That's definitely my understanding. And um, so the fig trees, when you see that happening, but also all the signs, all the signs in heaven or these, these different signs, which you can get more details about by reading Mark. And um, that generation, it's specifically that generation, the generation that sees those signs being fulfilled, that generation will not pass away. The, this to me seems like a very plain reading of, of the text. Um, now, some people say the fig tree is Israel. So when you see the fig tree, is, which is Israel budding, but I don't think that's the context of the passage. Um, I think it's the signs. Um, let's see. Then he has a warning for them. And the warning for them is at the end of that passage. Then we'll move on to Matthew. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And this is a really good warning for us. That that, and that day may come upon you suddenly like a trap because the longer the delay is, you know, in my own personal life between me right now and seeing Jesus, the more possibility there is for me to heap up sin, dissipation, drunkenness, you know, basically the cares of this life, this world where I'm not seeking for God's kingdom is righteousness. And man, that's a good reminder. We get too comfortable in the world. And uh, that's a good reminder. So for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times. 
praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So now we're going to look at Matthew. And that is our third, our third gospel. We won't look at it in as much detail because Matthew really very much repeats some of this, some of the same content we've already heard. But I think Matthew adds one more piece in the puzzle that I think is very interesting. So let's look at what Matthew says. And, and just so you know, this is, Matthew's another one of those passages where it's like this generation, but it's in the same context. And so you already know where I'm going with this, but let's dig in. Matthew 24, one, he says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Same context again. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I might throw out there that the temple was built with these things called Herodian stones, which these massive, many-ton, ginormous stones that were just huge, and it was considered a huge and wonderful building feat. It was like the pride of Israel was the temple. Um... And along with the gold and other things going on that were there as well. Then in verse three, um, he says, it says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, do you remember when I said in Mark, the context implied that they were asking more than just about the destruction of the temple. Well, in Matthew, it's not just implied, it's clearly stated. Not only when will it be, but what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, how, how do I see this? Uh, I see this as definitely they're asking about more than just the destruction of the temple. But why is the 70 AD destruction of the temple discussed in the context of the second coming? It's because... Similar things happen at both times. There's going to be the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Jesus gives them a word that will help protect them from that. When you see the, the armies flee Jerusalem uh, to help protect the believers. But then in a future time when the temple's rebuilt, there will also be a abomination of desolation. Eventually that whole thing will be destroyed. The next temple from a futurist perspective, the next temple is not considered a glorious thing. Um, in all reality, it is a fulfillment of scripture, but it's not something that we're super excited about in the sense of, oh, I mean, it's being done in, in, uh, in, in ignorance of Christ or in rejection of Christ instead of because of him. And so as you, as you then continue reading through Matthew, it just tracks right along pretty much the same way Mark did. So you're welcome to study that on your own. But what I want to do now is say this, look, that was Matthew 24. Okay. Um, here's Matthew 24. He talks about the signs, the destruction of the temple, the signs of the end of the age, and it goes on. Um, the abomination of desolation is spoken of just like in Mark. Same basic content, um, the des description of the fig tree. Then he says, no one knows the day or the hour. So it's the same as Mark, really. But then Jesus gets into a series of parables which do relate to the issue of when he comes. And everything I've said so far implies there's stuff that will happen. There's a long delay. Don't sweat it. You just stay faithful till death. This implies a long delay, but the parables, they imply a long, a long delay as well. So the parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew 25, um, it, it discusses that the kingdom of heaven is like, um, 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So extra oil beyond what the lamp already has naturally. As the bridegroom was delayed, delayed, 
The bridegroom was delayed. Jesus is the bridegroom in this context. They all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. And you know the story. They, they, they go out and the ones that don't have oil, they're, they're rejected. And the ones that do, they're received. Um, oh, I skipped one of the parables. There's also a parable right before this one. Um, it, and it's in uh, Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51. Here it is right here. Um, speaking of the faithful and wise servant, how a servant is given given uh, uh, the responsibility of being over the household. And then the wicked, lazy servant, he notices that something's happened. His master is delayed. Okay, so we have in that parable, the master is delayed. In the parable of the ten virgins, um, he's delayed. And then we read more in Matthew 25, starting with verse 14. We have another parable, the parable of the talents. And so, uh, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. And what this guy does is he gives five talents, which is a massive, massive amount of wealth he gives to somebody. It's not a talent like you're skilled at dancing. Like, that's not what's being discussed. You could maybe apply it to that, but that's not, that's not what's meant by talent here. Um, and to someone else, he gave two talents. To someone else, he gave one. Each of them a massive amount of uh, money to, according to their ability. Then he goes away. And the interesting thing here is, I think in verse 19, it says, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So the third parable in a row that, that offers a description of a long distance, a delay, a long time between the now and the then of when the second coming is going to be. Um, and then if that's not good enough, you've got um, the the story or the parable of the sheep and the goats. And you're probably familiar with this, right? When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so he's he separates them and, and you know the story, right? He places the sheep on one side, the goats on the other, and then he tells the sheep and they're sort of surprised by this. He's like, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. He goes on, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now they're surprised. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And feed you or thirsty and give you drink. When did, when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he goes on and he says basically the, the, the flip side, the opposite of the goats. Like they didn't visit him. They didn't do it. And, and because they didn't do it to his brethren, they didn't do it to him. But how does this parable relate to the delay between the first and second coming of Jesus. Well, these people live their entire Christian lives without knowing Jesus physically. They've, they've ministered to people, but they've never ministered to Jesus directly. And so that, of course, corresponds to a long delay. He's preparing them, I think, for a long delay. That's the context of the passage. Um, there's a couple other verses I want to mention to you guys. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take your guys' questions. And I'm very happy to, to get those questions, including if you disagree, I ask you to be, if you're going to ask me a question and you disagree with me, I do recommend that you don't try to bait me um, with something, not because I'm worried about being tricked, but I'll probably just miss what you're trying to get at. Just be as clear as possible. I will not be offended and I will try to handle your question as balanced and rationally and, and thoughtfully as I'm able. Um, 
So Jesus's knowledge um, about the timing is interesting. Here, let me just, another passage that weighs in on how long would it be between Jesus's first and second coming is Acts chapter one, verse six. Now we know previously Jesus said he didn't know the day or the hour, but in Acts one, verse six, it's, they're asking him again, now that he's ascended, now that the first coming has successfully been accomplished and he's about to ascend, they're like, when are you coming back? Um, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, and his answer is really interesting. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. Do you get the idea that this is the same as Mark? He's like, you're going to be my witnesses. You'll be persecuted. You focus on that. And yet there are future times and seasons, but it's just not for you to know. So an, a delay of an undetermined time between the first and second coming. So um, I think that answers the critics. I think it hopefully answers a, a good chunk of preterism. There's a ton of other verses that come into to mind and, and come up as we try to deal with these issues. Um, oh, there's one other actually one other phrase of Jesus we've got to cover, and it's in Matthew 10, 23. Because this is the one. Like R.C. Sprawl quotes this as being a reference to the fact that Jesus had to come back. R.C. Sprawl, who we who we love and respect, he quotes this as a reference to Jesus having to come back during the lifetime of some at least some of the apostles. Um, so Matthew 10, 23. It says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the son of man comes. Now that sounds in the, you know, if, if your context is, hey, when's Jesus coming back? Well, they won't even, the disciples won't even get through all the towns of Israel before Jesus comes, let alone the whole world. So wait, that's sound interesting because I thought the gospel would be preached throughout the world before the second coming. Here he says it won't even make it through Israel before Jesus comes. Uh, the easy answer is in context, this is talking about Jesus's first coming and it's a very, it's more pragmatic. It's not prophetic. So let me, let me read to you starting in verse five. So Matthew 10, five, the, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them. He sends them out and he's, this is while he's walking on this earth and he says, go nowhere among the Gentiles. So where are they going to go? Uh, just Israel. Enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You've received without paying, give without pay, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics. Do you get the idea? He's, he's sending them out two by two into the towns of Israel, just Israel. And in verse 11, whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. This is not instructions for modern Christians. This is instructions for the, the disciples that one time. Um, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Now here's the context. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable for the day uh, on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What town? The town that the disciples, while Jesus was walking the earth, they go to this town and they're rejected. Then he warns them about persecution. Uh, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent, innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts. And he goes on to talk about how they're going to be drugged before the Gentiles and they're going to be suffering a lot of different things. Uh, but this is the context for, for getting to verse 23. 
Um, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And then as you scroll down in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, guess what happens? The Son of Man comes. He fulfills what he predicted in verse 23. 11.1 says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So another verse that's used to try to make it look like Jesus failed or something like that um, by the by the critics um, or to support a, a particular view of preterism by others, I think it's just very clearly saying, Jesus goes, go out two by two. I'm coming right behind you. So if someone gives you a hard time, just move on to someone else because there isn't even time for you to deal with that. And then he sends them out. And in chapter 11, verse one, he comes into the cities that he just sent them into. So the, the order of things seems really interesting to me in that context. And this is all like, you don't need to know Greek to study the Bible, guys. You just read it in context. Just read it in context. The, uh, the only other verses I'll cover, and then we'll go right to your guys' questions in about uh, three minutes. So you, you can go ahead and put those in the live stream and, um, and uh, AJ will get those to me. But in Matthew 16, 28, here's another verse used by, this, especially the skeptics, uh, to try to attack the Bible. It says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Um, I'll just notice two things. Th th this would, on the surface, if you read it, especially just pull it out of the context, it seems to be saying, yeah, Jesus is coming back within the lifetime of at least some of the people that are standing there. Except he doesn't use the phrase with his holy angels. And, and that's interesting because in other passages, he repeatedly uses the phrase that he's coming with his holy angels, that he's not just coming in his kingdom, but with his angels. Now the term kingdom of God, well, Jesus said the kingdom was, was happening right then in that day, right? When Jesus started preaching, Matthew four seventeen, his first thing he says in Matthew, public preaching is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here now. In Luke eleven twenty, 20, Jesus says, uh, if it's by the finger of God, I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has, past tense, come upon you. So it's referenced as being a now reality, but also a future reality. Um, so the, we have both of those in the context. So Jesus coming in his kingdom, well, he was coming in his kingdom, but they were going to see him coming in his kingdom. So what did that mean? Well, in Matthew 16, the very next thing that happens after six days, Jesus takes Peter and James and John, and then he's transfigured before them. And it says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. That's, that's what, this is an event we call the transfiguration. Jesus, his glories revealed. God says, this is my beloved son, hear him. So the context of this statement, um, some of you, some of you, will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Of course, the implication is the rest of you will taste death before you see this, but some select group of you won't. The very next thing that happens is the transfiguration. Now, what's interesting is, uh, that's Matthew. Mark and Luke also record the same statement of Jesus, that some people won't die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, a very similar statement. Every single time, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the very next event is the transfiguration. So if it was only in one of the Gospels, I wouldn't see the transfiguration as a fulfillment of that. But because all three Gospels carry the very next event is the transfiguration, I think that's profound. And I think we have to listen to that. Because the Gospel authors, they would move things around topically. They would skip over events depending on the purposes of their writing and all that and the leading of the Spirit. 
Well, the Holy Spirit led them to all record this in exactly the same order chronologically. Um, and I think that that's pretty uh, significant. Okay, so that was that was the spiel. Now I want to take your guys' questions, if you have any. So uh, if AJ could uh, send those messages over to me. Um, I'll just wait for those questions to come in. I'm assuming you guys have some. And I'll just say uh, hi to everybody. I see we've got uh, 50 different people watching online right now. That's pretty exciting stuff. I... Um, I'm just stalling right now, waiting for AJ to send me the messages, <laughs> the questions. I know I saw some in the live chat. I glanced over, so I know they're there. I just haven't, I haven't got them yet, I think. AJ Bernard, send me the questions. Or you can post your questions in if you guys are impatient. Here they come. Here's the slew. Okay, see that was that's that that's that doctrine right there of being ready, being ready because you don't know like a thief in the night. I suddenly ask for the questions. Um, so from Chris Bucklin asks a question. Uh, getting my first question in early, he says, "Mike, could you walk us through how you're going about? Uh, oh, how you go about researching a topic? How did you research prophecies in the Bible or this topic? Do you have a certain system? Kinda. I don't have it. I wouldn't say I have like a really well formatted system or something like that. But but here's the idea." One of the things I do for, say, a Bible topic is um, I want to gather um, all the relevant passages. So I will try to, you know, get any passage I think that's related to the issue. I'll bring it all together. And then I want to study it and look into it usually without commentaries. Just read it on my own thoughtfully. But then I also want to look at commentaries. And then to be honest, nowadays especially, I look more for disagreeing opinions often than I do agreeing opinions because I, that's why I listen to a lot of R.C. Sprawl because he disagrees with, with what I'm saying on a lot of these issues. I wanted to hear him out. If I'm wrong, I want to know it. But also, I want to be able to speak in a way that if you were of a different opinion than me, then it would... See, I know what you've been taught so I can hopefully communicate in a way that clicks with you. So I'm not just talking to my own people, a room of nodding heads that already agree with me. That's, that's one of my things I like to do. I like to look at different disagreeing opinions um, and see what they have to say about an issue. But it really depends. Uh, prophecy, very different, different issue to study than, say, the theology. Um, when it comes to theology, that's different stuff. So yeah, um, gather all the passages that are relevant, try to spend the time meditating on them, listening to them, reading through them, um, get all your own questions answered, listen to varying opinions, including those who agree with you, but especially those who don't. That's what I often do before I do my particular teaching, but let's be honest, I'm, I don't teach. I'm not teaching in a fashion that is necessarily typical. <laughs> so, so I don't know how much benefit that'll be to you, but that's what I do. So from William Toy, um, William says, Mike, doesn't the fact that the Bakokba rebellion in the second century being worse than 70 AD show preterism to be false? Um, there was supposed to be, to never be anything worse. Um, yeah, I do think that that's interesting. I don't know all that much about the, I think it, it says Bakokba, I think it's Bakokba, but I could be wrong. I don't know that much about that rebellion. I only know a certain amount of it. So I don't know if it was worse or not, but taking you at your word, um, yeah, that would be, that would basically be, the preterist, I think, would respond by saying, well, it was exaggerating language. It was just an exaggeration. And then they would quote Old Testament prophecies they think which exaggerated, which I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily think they even did exaggerate in the Old Testament prophecies um, about those sorts of things. But anyways, I think that would be their response. Um, I, I think also, you know, the, uh, 
you could look at multiple events in history after 70 AD and say, this seems like it was worse. <laughs> this seems like it was worse. So, um, yeah. So from Solo Spiritus 70 AD, a question from Mike. Will you do a show on the topic of Russellism relevant to futurism and preterism? How this concept fits into this whole eschatological narrative? I haven't really looked that much into Russellism as it relates to this. I'm assuming you mean Charles Taze Russell um, and his end, end time views. I, I don't know. I have no, no current agenda for that. I have a long list of future videos planned. If you guys are interested in me studying into more of Russellism, then please let me know. And I'll definitely consider it. Um, from Joshua Rivera. Questions. Uh, why is there so much division in Christianity on the topic of a rapture? And uh, why is there such a divide in opinion on something as important as the rapture? Isn't this huge? Well, think of the division on the rapture as being sort of in two, two different kinds of disagreements. And it's not necessarily division. Personally, I totally can fellowship with people who have very different views of eschatology. So I'm not divided from them on the issue. I think we shouldn't divide on the issue, to be honest. I think that's very unwise. I would personally like to have a fellowship where people can gather and fellowship who have different views on non-essential issues. I think that that's a good thing. And um, and I and by faith, I believe it's possible. <laughs> um, but the rapture is, there's two separate issues really to deal with. One is, is there a rapture-like event? I think on that, it seems very clear, you know, Thessalonians, I think it's very clear that we are, we are, we are transformed, we are caught up. The question is, does it happen this time, this time, or that time? And that's where the debate happens. Some of the justifications I hear for the different views are a little bit weak, and um, in my opinion. But but how strongly people hold to those views is very intensely. You notice, remember how I said earlier, I, I hold somewhat loosely or with a little bit of more grace to eschatological views. Um, that's what keeps us from being divided. It's just that that bit of grace on the issue. And that's what I would recommend for others. Um, so from William Toy, uh, Mike, have you heard the theory on only the father knowing the day based on Hebrew wedding tradition? What do you think? I am curious. Uh, I've heard a lot of the Hebrew wedding tradition stuff and I find it very interesting, like I'm sure a lot of you guys do. Um, but I don't know if it actually goes back to the time of Jesus or if it's much later traditions. Sometimes we we find later tradition, like look at Passover celebrations. They they involve a lot of things that came post Christ and you know developed over time. I'm curious to know how many of them were pre Christ. Uh, that would be something I'm I'm interested to study one day. The wedding traditions, the same thing. I'd like to know where these come from. How do we know that they're actually really are true? And if they are true. How do we know that that relates to this issue? It just seems like we're kind of really just guessing at the issue. However, I'll say this. In Acts 1, even though Jesus previously said he didn't know the day or the hour, in Acts chapter 1, he didn't say it again. He didn't say, I don't know. He just says, you guys, it's not given to you to know the day or the hour. Jesus may now know. Um, and I'm inclined to think that probably because of my Christology, but that would be just an opinion. Uh, question from Adrian. Hey, Mike. If I believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, I'll be saved, right? Well, as long as you're not that James 2 kind of belief, right? Like, you believe and there's tr true faith and trust in Christ. You believe in his death and his resurrection. So we call that repentance and faith. Um, and repentance not meaning um, you you somehow never sin again. But, but no, there's been a genuine turning from sin and from worldliness to God and to trusting in him. To, to You've turned your life to God in genuineness. So... 
So I would say yes, just so long as that faith is not dead. And I actually have a video online where I go through James chapter 2 in detail, verse by verse, and I rebut, I think, the Catholic opinion or understanding or any, any works-based system understanding of that. Um, so question from Aliyah Todd. Aliyah Todd, true Christian. And also from, okay, I have two questions actually from two different people. So from, from Greeky as well. Uh, what are the designs on your shirt? <laughs> That's funny. I just read these questions like I don't have a chance to look at them ahead of time. They're they're just little, they're just they're just little slashes. I don't know. Um, true story. Before I was married, uh, I would shop at thrift stores because I was like, why pay more than three dollars for a shirt? Um, since I got married, slowly over time, like my wife just buys shirts and brings them home, and I put them on. So couldn't even tell you where it came from. Uh, all right, question. Do you believe that we will be raptured before he comes for the tribulation? Um, I'm not sure. And one day I want to I basically, what I'm trying to do, especially in my online ministry, is reassess my theology, reevaluate it. And so in many areas, I just go into, let me say, do I, do I feel I have this firmly established just with the teachings of scripture? Or is some of this just things I've inherited? That doesn't mean it's wrong. But I just want to acknowledge that I've inherited it because it's hard to see your own traditions. You know, other people can, later generations can, but but do I? So I would say the rapture is something where I believe there is a rapture event. The question is, when does it come? And I don't yet feel like I've reestablished it just with scripture. But I'll, I'll have to admit, I have not done a thorough study on the topic just the way I've done it with other issues. And so I just haven't come to it yet because it hasn't been a huge priority for me. So I know it's something people are interested in, but not something that I've spent all that time on. I know the arguments for and against, but I have not yet settled myself in a way that I want to teach publicly on the topic and lock myself down and lead you to believe one thing or another. I haven't got to that place just yet. And so forgive me. Some people will be mad at me for that. And um, uh, that's... I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just abstaining from the issue. I'm not even saying one way or the other. Um, so I have a question here from Martin Gradwell. Uh, Mike, why think the temple is rebuilt? Uh, there's no temple in the new, in the new Jerusalem. The temple that Jesus said he'd rebuild was his body. Today, our bodies are temples. Avoiding abomination in our bodies is key. Well, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, both individually and corporately. So that's true. Um, I think that the, and the abomination that causes desolation requires the temple to be rebuilt. I think the specific teachings in Daniel, my understanding, Daniel 11, Daniel 12, um, is that there's these sacrifices taking place. And then the Antichrist puts a stop to those sacrifices at a certain point in time. And those are happening in the temple. Then he goes into the temple and he declares himself as God. And, and so I, I see those as being fairly literal fulfillments taking place in a future time, which would require the temple to be rebuilt. If you see those as being fulfilled somehow in the past, then you have no requirement for the temple to be rebuilt. So I'd say look at Daniel 11 and 12 and, and consider that along with the, the words of Jesus about the abomination of desolation. Um, then from, uh, from Trey Haynes, question on 2 Thessalonians 1, and it says, is this the entire entirety of the church? If so, how is he coming with flaming fire to execute judgment? Uh, you know... I'm sorry, Trey, I think I need your question to be a little more clear for, for my sake, because what I don't, one thing I don't want to do for the sake of the live stream audience is I don't want to go and have to like read a passage, not understanding the question, 
because that's just boring for everybody to watch. Um, so I'd say if you could ask that with a little bit more clarity then I might be able to answer. Um, I just didn't quite pick up on it. So, um, so you guys, this, uh, this Saturday, I'm actually going to be part of something kind of exciting. I wanted to share with you. Um, I think I have the, yeah, I have the pamphlet right here. There's a, 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 a ministry for, to former Jehovah's witnesses. And it's called right here. You see it witnesses now for Jesus. And they're doing a, a conference, um, here on the West coast up in Sacramento. So you can actually go online and find a witnesses now for Jesus. They have a, an East coast conference, but this year they're doing a West coast conference and I've been asked to come and share. And I'm going to go share there just during a breakout session, uh, during a small, like mini session, but I'm very excited to get to do that. Uh, they've, they've invited me up for that. And that's pretty, pretty cool. I'm going to talk about how to witness to Jehovah's witnesses. And one of the things is to gain a heart for them. People who disagree with you on salvific issues, that's called evangelism, right? <laughs> this is this is like the love of God and the truth of Christ being shared with them, not just to combat with them, but to invite them to know Jesus. And and so we we need we need hearts of compassion. The greater the error someone is in, the the greater the terror they will face. And so we we really need um, for the love of Christ to reach out with compassion to them. So we're going to be talking about that along with um, why you can't trust the watchtower.org, which or jw.org, which is why um, probably next week's stream, I'll probably build off of the content I'm preparing for this uh, conference. And I'll be sharing something in the vein of Jehovah's Witnesses or jw.org, something about the governing body and the unreliability of those things. So that's my plan. But, uh, but I think I've monologued for long enough today. Uh, tomorrow is Wednesday. We'll be, I'll be putting out one of the Wisdom in the Word videos from Ecclesiastes is tomorrow. So that should be fun. And until then, thank you guys. God bless you. I appreciate you being here. I'm working out the little kinks with my live streams. Um, I, I will have to edit this live stream because that first section was me just making sure it was working, which means the live chat will disappear. So I'm, I'm sorry for that. I don't have any control over that. That's YouTube's decision, not mine. Um, but, uh, but, but hopefully by next week, I'll have it figured out. I'm gonna try different software, a little bit better every time. That's my plan until, until one day it's actually good. <laughs> All right. So thanks guys for being here. Thanks again, AJ. God bless you guys.